It's my favorite sound in human history right there, by the way. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Lord, Lord, we do pray help for us not merely to know the scripture this morning, to study it for understanding, context, for historical antiquity and understanding, but Lord, help us to know this with our hearts. Help us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we might see of your glory. Give us help, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this is number four in a series of sermons looking at... um, So he became their savior from the book of Isaiah. As we began this series, remember we looked at Isaiah chapter 1. We saw the need for a savior, how we are all like sheep. We have gone astray. We are spiritually sick. We are desperately in need of rescue that comes only from the Lord. That rescue is not through religious ritual. It's not through the atonement of our own sins, trying to do enough good works or praying enough. But it testifies how the Lord himself will act in human history to bring about a salvation for all those who trust in him. So we considered our need for a savior. We also considered the promise of a savior, how there would be one who would be born, a son. The government would rest on his shoulders. He would be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Of the increase of his government, there would be no end. And we saw in the third study the work of the Savior. And as it comes in three dominant waves, one is that of bringing a righteous judgment. But but there is also a promise about bringing a a new Eden, about a new Eden. He will bring peace to the earth as far as the sea is covered with water. And also earth will be one day covered with the knowledge of the Lord in the same manner. We saw that the lamb and the lion will lie down together, that babies will lie on top of cobra holes and they will not be harmed. There is this kind of Eden-like promise of the new heavens and new earth. And and then we saw that third segment of work last week of the Savior, which involves His his suffering, His his dying, His atoning, His sacrificial atoning replacement for sinners in the gospel. And so now we come this week on this very special day to consider the appearance of the Savior. What is the book of Isaiah pointing forward to the Gospels? What does it tell us about the coming of the Savior? Well, let's start in Isaiah chapter 40. I've chosen Isaiah 40 and 61 as as kind of two bookends of what we'll look at in the Gospels this morning. And then we're going to also turn to Luke 1 through 4, be all over the place. And we've got a lot to cover. 
So we'll first look at the preparation of his appearance. That's the first thing we'll consider this morning, the preparation of his appearance. This will take most of our time. In fact, most of our time is going to be in this first little section right here, because in Isaiah 40, 1 through 8, and even in Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, what we start with is pre-prophetic announcements. This is what this is in Isaiah. They are pre-prophetic announcements. Um, In verse 1, Notice here, this is significant, that this is a passage of of comfort, right? Verse 1 tells us, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. That's pretty good news because if you've been with us so far in the first four weeks of this study, all throughout the book of Isaiah, he speaks pretty harshly to Jerusalem, doesn't he? He calls her a harlot, An unfaithful child, a sheep that's gone astray. But here, he doesn't speak that way. Here now, he says, speak comfort to her because her warfare has ended. Never again will it be attacked. It will always be at peace. Not only because her warfare has ended, though, but because her iniquity has been pardoned. So it's a time of promise, a time where there will be perfect peace, not only with other people, but more importantly, with God himself. For she has received from the Lord's hand double of all her sins. In other words, sin has been atoned for. So so speaking of the prophetic future, when's this going to happen, we ask? What is the way that this peace will be brought to Jerusalem? Well, put your eyes with me on verses 3 and 4. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The, um, that's verse 5. We're in verse 4. Now, now listen, I, wanna, I stopped there because I want to I give you a modern translation of that. Right? Just, just imagine for a second, the, the highest elected official in our country decides to come to Callahan. And upon his trip here, he says, I don't want to go up any hills. I don't want to go down any valleys. Also, I don't want there to be any curves in the road whatsoever. I want it to be straight. All the way from Washington, a straight ride right on in. And so all the teams get out there and begin to construct this road that brings down every mountain, exalts every valley, and makes everything straight so that this one can make it all the way in. Prepare the way. That's the language that's used here, and that's actually what's happening in the ancient world with these kings. Uh, The king said, because I have power, I have ability, I have finances, when I travel from city to city, I don't want it to be unpleasant. I want to be known that this is the the king's highway, that it was specifically prepared for me. And so they get out there and they do this very thing. So when he says the Lord comes, he says, this is what it's going to be like. This is preparation for a coming of a king. And the way that way is prepared is by the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's bringing down everything that's been exalted. He's raising up that which is lowly and humble. He is making straight the ways of the Lord by his message crying out from the wilderness. Then put your eyes with me on verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. When this one comes in the wilderness, it is then that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. That will bring the peace for Jerusalem, the pardoning of her sins, and all flesh He says, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. Okay, so this raises the question, how can we know this to be true? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that can get in the way between now and then. I mean, really, aren't kings ruling over nations even now in this context? Aren't, aren't people sinful? Aren't they full of iniquity? Aren't people just always getting in the messy way of, of everything God plans and intends to do? I mean, this is a promise that seems pretty secure because God has said it. But, but really, do we know for sure this is going to happen? Well, that's why the next verses exist. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 6. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. All the ones who try to stand in the way of this happening are people that are like grass. And this grass, by the way, is not like the grass if you've ever read The, the Great Divorce by uh, C.S. Lewis where the grass is more solid than the people who dwell there and it sticks up through their feet. Not that kind of grass. This is grass you trample on. It says, all flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. All the kingdoms, all the kings, all the people who are going to say, I am God, I am king, I am the ruler of the world. All of that is passing like grass and passing like flowers. Verses 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God is the promise of the one who has the voice crying in the wilderness, who will make straight the ways of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. This, this, listen, of course this text, we say it every Sunday, right? This applies to the whole Bible. The word of our God stands forever. But in this specific contrast in human flesh as grass in the word of God is it's in the context of this specific promise of the one who will come and make a way for the Lord. And so, so we come to the gospels, the question is going to be raised, who is the one who is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40? All right, that's one bookend. Let's go to the second bookend in Isaiah chapter 61. You flip back there as we read before. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, speaks of the glory of the Lord. Here, we do not see the one who is announcing the coming of the anointed king. Here we see this is the anointed one. This is the anointed one. Look at verse 1. The spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. By the way, this word anointed is the same word we get the word Messiah from. He has messiahed me, so to speak. The ones who were anointed under the old covenant, remember, they were the prophet, priest, and kings. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who anoints this one as prophet, priest, and king. And what is he going to do? To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you have one in Isaiah 40 who's, who's going to come along and say, I'm the one making the way for the glory of the Lord to the glory of the Lord. And here's this one who is the glory of the Lord. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. See, what's interesting is, is we often think of judgment as something that's terrifying, don't we? But did you know for God's people, judgment will be the day of comfort for us? 
That's what it says in the text. Verse 3 tells us to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. They were mourning. They were sad. And and what would you do in that day? You would get in dust and ashes to, to show that you were mourning. You would throw those on your head. And here is God causing their heads to be washed. And a beautiful headdress would be put on instead. It says the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This is... This is celebratory. It's glorious. This is a message that causes the people to rejoice, to dance, and celebrate. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It's an image for somebody who cannot be moved from their place. And what will be the result? Verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities the desolation of many generations. So there's this renewal, there's revival, there's transformation, there's bringing beauty out of what the locusts had eaten, out of the ashes of cities. And when will this come? It will be when the one who has come, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. When that way is prepared, then he will come. Now, I know that might not mean all that much to us because you and I know the rest of the story. But, but again, remember, part of the whole point of this series is I want us to enter into the audience of Israel, enter into the audience of the people in Jerusalem hearing for the first time. Imagine for a minute that you didn't know the rest of the story. You'd be asking two questions right now. You'd be asking, well, who's the first guy and who's the second guy? Who's the one who's a voice crying in the wilderness? Is is that just a a metaphor? Is that just an analogy? Or is there somebody who's actually going to do that? And in chapter 61, who's the one? The Spirit of God has anointed me. Is that Israel? Is it a particular person? Is it a Messiah figure? Exactly who is that? Well, when we turn to the New Testament gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, they knew exactly who these guys are. And it's exactly how they open their Gospels. So again, what I'd like to do now is go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. See, that was just the introduction. I hope you didn't have plans after this today. Luke 1 through 4. We're going to look. I'm not going to read all of this. If you've read the Christmas story, you know it's, it's extensive. But, but I am going to assume you mostly know these stories. But I want us to notice... A couple of things now. Secondly, not only the pre-prophetic announcements, I also want you to notice that there is now this calm before the storm. This is significant. If you look at, if you look at Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, what you have would, would probably be considered a relatively regular speaking of the Lord to his people. It's not necessarily just uber regular. It's relatively regular. You have God working. You've got God manifesting himself. Remember, God's raising up prophets, priests, and kings. We have that all the way up until about 400 B.C. And then then there's exile. And then after a short period of of post-exilic times, it suddenly just ends. Think about this. Prophecy, like a faucet of hundreds of years, it's just been turned on through the major and minor prophets. It is completely shut off. There is not even a drip of a word from the Lord for 400 years. And so the people, they've got this tank of of prophetic utterances, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk. But, But now for 400 years, they're looking at the faucet and there's no new information coming out whatsoever. 
God is no longer speaking. And in this kind of vacuum of silence, this, uh, this pressure and release valve, and, and then in that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happen, and it just it explodes with things. I mean, notice in the gospel how much happens surrounding it. Like angelic appearances happening at times in the Old Testament. Think about it. There are very few. In the Old Testament, there's the angel appears when Samson's going to be born, right? The angel of the Lord says to Samson's parents these things. Those are occasional things that happen. There's Hannah, remember? She's barren. She prays. She's visitation, has a baby. But, the, but there's nothing like what happens in the opening parts of the Gospels. It's like God took all these climactic events that happened in the Old Testament. He just rolls them into one and he turns that baby all the way up to 11. That's what happens at Jesus' birth. It's remarkable. So we have pre-prophetic announcements. We have this calm before the storms, etc. 400 years of silence, building pressure. When's the Messiah coming? And then now notice this. We've got angelic announcements. And not just one. Angels are showing up all over the place. The door of heaven has been opened and suddenly angels... In Luke, we're told about Zechariah and his, his wife. Zechariah's an old guy. He, he gets some opportunity to do some service in the temple. While he's in the temple, an angel shows up. After 400 years, what a shock that would be. He's in there praying about having a baby. He's, his mind is, I'm old. My wife can have children. Angel appears. Hey, guess what? You're going to have a kid. What's he going to be? Because this isn't any kid. This is a special kid. And so this angel shows up to Zechariah and the angel shows up to Mary. Says, oh, favored one of the Lord. She was greatly troubled. Back in the book of Matthew, an angel shows up to Joseph. Visions come to Joseph and say, don't put away Mary. The, uh, the child she has is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then back in Matthew, you've got the, the shepherds. And so there's just angels everywhere. It's like the doors of heaven have opened. In the Old Testament, you get an angel here and there, but they're like running free over this place now. You can just kind of see them, can't you? You can just kind of see them waiting in anticipation. He's going to be born. The Messiah's coming. He's going to be born. And the Lord's like, okay, boys, go. And they just start breaking into human history, showing up to all these people and say, guess who's coming? This is after 400 years of silence. But that's not all that happens. There are angelic announcements, but there are also miraculous births, aren't they? I mean, one we've kind of seen before, like in Sarah. Remember Sarah from the Old Testament? She's, she's old. She's 100 years old. She can't have a baby. So Zachariah and Elizabeth, they, they want a baby. They can't have a baby. Zachariah is like, how, how do I know I'm going to get a baby to the angel? The angel says, okay, nine months of silence, shuts his mouth. He can't speak anymore. So there's a barren woman, a woman past age, and there's a miraculous birth. But, but then a virgin has a baby. The first time in human history that a human being arrived from a virgin. And in God's miraculous working, a virgin conceives in accordance to the promise of Messiah. God's like... This is something special here. My messenger is going to be born of a barren woman, and my Messiah is going to be born of a virgin woman. You don't have anything like that coming in a couplet anywhere in human history, by the way. Not even in the Old Testament. 
So God's, God's putting spotlight after spotlight on this moment. But that's not all. Angelic announcements, miraculous births, also a heavenly sign. In Matthew, we see that, a heavenly sign. You're going to have to write fast if you're writing these, by the way, because we're about to move it. Is it a comet? Is it a star burning out? Is it an unusual meteoric event? I don't know, but, but it's there. They see it, and, and it brings wise men from the east who go, look at that. You know what that is? That's the Messiah star. We should go to Israel. So these wise men come from the east to seek the wisdom of God's people because a greater one than Solomon has come. So there's a heavenly sign, but not only that, there's, there's even satanic resistance, isn't there? Herod says, kill all the male children under two years old, according to the time to the men from the east. By the way, I, there's so much here that we could just consistently go back to the Old Testament, couldn't we? Painting the picture of this, this moment. Herod says, kill them all. There's this satanic upheaval. Satan even knows with all this work, he says, well, now's my chance. And if I don't do it now, I'm sunk. I'm done. If I don't overcome the birth of this one, if I don't devour the child that's coming out of the womb of the woman, he's going to be too powerful for me. And so visions come. Joseph's warmed. He's escaped, but that's not all. There's satanic resistance, heavenly signs, angelic announcements. There's a calm before the storm, pre-prophetic announcement. There's also, did you get all that, by the way? Um, there's a preparatory prophet. Okay, so now we remember Isaiah, right? There, there's one who has a voice in the wilderness who's crying out. Notice Luke chapter 3, verse 4. Luke chapter 3, verse 4. Zechariah, as they name him John, it says this in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Sound familiar? Verses 5 and 6. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is what happens when John the Baptist comes preaching a baptism of repentance from sin. God raises up for the first time in 400 years an inspired prophet to make way. He's the last of the greatest prophets of the Old Covenant. He's really the last prophet. There's a divinely orchestrated history leading up to this moment. That's what the genealogy in Luke tells us, actually. In fact, it goes on in Luke chapter 3. I almost read this to you, but the genealogy is significant in this way. In the very least, the genealogy, the list of names there, it tells us that God himself is in control of human history. Right? As you read that, he was giving children, he's moving destinies, he's moving people and their families, and he's doing it from now all the way back to Adam. God has since Adam orchestrated human history, and he has done so for this very specific moment. That's what you should read when you read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. That's not all. There's a preparatory prophet. There's also what I'm calling pneumatic pronouncement. Pneumatic, pneuma being the Greek word for spirit or breath. There's a pneumatic pronouncement. I just wanted those to alliterate. Spirit-filled announcement you can write if you're not OCD like me. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit starts showing up and speaking through people. 
He speaks through Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's her expression that this is the guy, that the baby in the womb is the guy. This is the hope of Israel, the coming Messiah. And my soul magnifies the Lord. So the Spirit opens her lips, so to speak, of the angel to say this. This is the son of David. This is the son of the Most High. But the, the Spirit also opens up Zechariah in Chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, to kind of affirm the same thing. After Zechariah's silence, he, his mouth is open. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through him, pronouncing this king. We have Simeon in the temple. Remember Simeon, right? It's an old man. 400 years of silence, and God had promised Simeon he would not die before he saw the anointed one. And here this old man is in the temple, and he sees the baby being dedicated. And the Spirit of God speaks through him in chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Then his brother Corey read, the prophetess Anna comes along. She likewise, this is the one she had hoped for. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the guy. But that's not all. After this, after all of these things taking place in just a flurry of time, there's again this silence except for maybe one episode in the 12th year of Jesus' life. But then we have this one who comes preaching in chapter 3, John the Baptist. He says, this is the one crying in the wilderness. He is making the way straight. Jesus comes to be baptized by him. And what happens then after Jesus is baptized? The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit leads them, him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then finally, with all of this, after 400 years of upheaval, angels are showing up, prophets are showing up, barren and virgins are having babies, wise men are showing up, shepherds are showing up, genealogies are prepared to tell of all of human history that this is why he's come. The Spirit's moving. He's speaking through people. The Spirit comes after those 30 years, after all of this. And who is this guy? Well, look what happens in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. In Luke 4, verse 16, So he, being Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed, notice that, he was handed, he didn't pick it, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he reads. See if this sounds familiar as well. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He says, here I am. What it would have been like to be there in that moment, right? In a synagogue, maybe the size of this congregation, maybe even smaller, to have that kid from Nazareth who, who you knew, right? He, he always came to the synagogue, as was his custom. He's 30 years old now. He's been gone for 40 days, which was really weird. Who knows where he was? There's something about that crazy guy in the, the desert that eats bugs that baptized him and Something miraculous happening, some crazy stories, remember, of, of 30 years ago. You remember his birth, how all that stuff happened? There were all these rumors of barren women and virgins having children, angels showing up. I mean, it's been 30 years. This kid hasn't done anything unusual. I mean, he seems like a particularly good kid, but other than that, he gets up, they hand him the scroll, he reads this and says, 
It's me. It's me. Verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which was the place of teaching. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you imagine now? I mean, think about this. Just put yourself there. What's he going to say? Like, is he going to encourage our hearts in the hope of the coming Messiah? Is he going to... He's going to say, keep holding on because the Messiah is coming. He sits down. All eyes are fixed on him. And then verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And not only this scripture, by the way, but all the promises of God are fulfilled in your hearing. So verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? i got to leave it there. I want to go on in that passage. There's more to say. But but that's the appearance of the son. So so you can see that this Jesus, as he's presented to us in the Gospels, he's unlike anybody in human history. The, The claims here are beyond comprehension. The claims here are either, listen, they're either astounding, true, and historical, or they're a big pile of bunk. That's it. Listen, there's no in between here, right? There's no coming away from this saying that Jesus, he seemed like a really swell guy. The the gospel writers seem to have a pretty high esteem of this fellow. Maybe we should just follow his rule to love one another. Listen, that's not even an option. Either he is to be totally ignored and even despised, or he is to be worshipped, adored, loved, and followed at the cost of absolutely everything this world has to offer. To say that he was merely a good teacher or the sum of true religion is just to love your neighbor as yourself or do the best you can to love your neighbors, it's not even an option, guys. It's unfeasible according to what the New Testament says. But all of this is leading up to the preparation of his appearance. So what does this mean then? Well, the second and final point is the purpose of his appearance. The purpose of his appearance. You know, he tells us at the end of Luke chapter 4, he tells us, Beginning with verse 42, this is after healing, after delivering people from demons, he goes into a desolate place in verse 42 and he says, Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place and the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. See, one of the primary reasons that Jesus comes is to preach. Specifically, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst because the king, I, am here. Now repent and believe and come under his gracious rule. Be saved because in the kingdom there is eternal protection. There's the promise of being forgiven by God himself. And so the appearance of the Savior is purpose to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It came for a couple other reasons I want to touch on just quickly. Part of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, I'd say, would be to announce the good news of grace. That's the first one I want to look at really quickly. To announce the good news of grace. Most kingdoms act like this. If you obey, you get in and you're protected. That is not a kingdom of grace. This is the good news of a kingdom of grace. That despite the fact that we are in need of a Savior and cannot with any ability of our own save ourselves, we've been promised 
grace. 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, it gives a specific reason why Jesus came. Speaking of God, it says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it's the good news of the kingdom of grace. You can enter in, not because of your own works or your own religiosity, but not because you've been a good boy or good girl, but because there is grace that has appeared through Jesus. There's grace that's appeared through His sacrifice, through His atonement, that brings you in and that makes you a part of His family, no matter how good or how bad you think you may have been. Which then enables us to give grace to others and also people who we know don't deserve to get in because we don't deserve it either. Paul says the same thing in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That means, listen, that means no matter who you are, grace is available to you. Do you fit under the category of all men? Then that grace is offered to you. And Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How do we get in, Jesus? What do we do to enter the kingdom of heaven? His answer, there's nothing you can do. I've done it all for you. I've lived perfectly, righteously. I've bridged the gap between you and God, which you could never on your best, most righteous and behaved day even come close to doing. I've come to proclaim that kingdom to you, he says. But, but notice also in Titus 2, verse 13, this is really where we're headed next week. It's that this appearing of the Savior is preparing us for another appearing of our Savior. Y'all didn't think we'd talk about Christmas without talking about return of Christ, did you? If you've been here long enough, hopefully you know that's not how we do things. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he taught us to live this way, it says, looking looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's the coming. So, so really, I could have named this sermon the, the first or initial appearance of Christ because that's where we're headed next week. Consider he's coming again. So by way of application, here, if you're new to Christianity or you've been exposed to different forms of Christianity, I want to make it plain to you with the first way we apply this text. And that is the appearance of the Savior is the centerpiece. Of what? Of everything. The appearance of the Savior is the centerpiece. This is the centerpiece that holds all of this together without which it all falls apart. It is the appearing of Jesus Christ that caused the angels to come out of the heavenly realms into the earth. It caused virgins and barren to give birth. It caused wise men from the east to show up and worship. Again, I would encourage you to wrestle with this. I really would. Because listen, if you, think, if you think he really is born or... Or you think some of these things are true, either adopt them all or chuck them all, just choose one. Here's why. Because there's no in-between. You say, I can believe that, but not that. 
But the appearance of Christ is what holds it together. All the teaching of Jesus, of the Bible, if this man didn't come in the way that this is described, then there is no saying, I'm going to try and just live a good Christian life by good Christian Western ethics, but I'm just not a believer in Jesus. That's not a thing. That doesn't exist. There is no Christian ethic without Christ. There is no church or Christianity without Jesus coming and dying and fulfilling all of these promises. And so this is the sin of understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't understand this Jesus, to know and love him, to believe that he was crucified, raised from the dead, and coming again, then stop picking and choosing the things in the Bible that suit your ethics. But listen, I, I don't want you to just chuck it all. No. Friend, I want you to receive it and believe it. To trust in it because it's your very hope in life. It's your very purpose for existing. You were created to bring honor and glory to the God who created you. And instead, according to the book of Romans, you've exchanged that truth for a lie that says you ought to worship the creation and not the creator. Friend, God in his mercy has made for you a way to be saved. It's the giving of his own son who lived a perfect life for you. If you would but repent and believe, then today could be the day. Where Jesus becomes not only the centerpiece where he belongs, but the very centerpiece of your life that holds you together. So as believers, our application here, I would remind us, is simple. It's, it's simply to make much of Jesus. Like, I know that sounds like Christianese. Both of those applications sound pretty basic to you, but we struggle. Like, we say, yeah, I want to make much of Jesus in my life, but we don't really do anything that demonstrates that. In fact, the reality is sometimes we as Christians get so bound up with the ethics of Christianity, we forget the Savior. We get so bound up with, with how do I live that we forget why we live. We get so bound up with, with knowing the Bible, we forget the very one the Bible is teaching us of. And in our living as believers, it is for our benefit that we make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. I mean, may we sing incarnational hymns, Christmas hymns with more fervency, saying, joy to the Lord, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. Brothers and sisters, specifically, even in this season and even today, as family comes around, as we engage in conversations, let me, let me encourage you, in our presentation of the gospel, let us be sure to keep the main thing the main thing. I mean, it is, it is easy to lead with a lot of things that just flat out aren't central. The bottom line is, he either is who he said he is, or there's really no use to argue anything else. Did you ever think about that? There's, there's no use to argue about politics, about sexuality, or gender identification. There's no use to arguing about anything if this isn't true. Now, we can argue about a lot of things from the Christian position, but we can do so in a manner that never actually presents Christ. And as Paul says, if this isn't true and Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we're to be pitied, not followed. You don't follow pitiful people. But if it is true, if it is right, if it's good, then friend, let us live with joy. 
Let us celebrate and keep Christ at the center. And if somebody wants to argue about things today, say, I'm glad to talk to you about that. But you won't understand my position on sexuality until you understand this. You won't understand my position on immigration until you understand this. You won't understand my position on suffering unless you understand this. You won't understand the the hope that lies within me unless you understand this. Church family, let us make much of Christ. Not only in our own hearts, but in the eyes of others by how we live. And let us be encouraged in this Christmas season to make much of his appearing. And never lose sight that we are looking forward to his appearing again to us. Let's close together with a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to remain seated as we pray. Lord, how gracious you are that even this thing was done, this thing we celebrate today was done in a little corner of the world, that you shook heaven and earth to show that this is your only begotten Son in whom you are well pleased. Thank you for the abundance of evidence for these eyewitnesses who wrote these letters. Lord, we pray for your help that we would make much of him. Not only this season as we celebrate Christmas, but Father, let the song of our heart throughout the year be, come let us adore him. Let us anticipate that coming again until he returns. Help us to graciously speak his name to tell others of him, to pray any who are sitting on the fence who don't know whether these things are true or not, that you would graciously put hooks in their heart and draw them with cords of love to the Lord Jesus even today. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go ahead and prepare for our time in the Lord's Supper and ask the deacons to go ahead and come down if you would. We're going to do that and there's... there's, I mean, gosh, we're taking the Lord's Supper on Christmas Day. There's like 10,000 places we could go. But I want to go really to the place we went last week for our benediction in Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to read this portion. I'll have a little bit to say and then we'll partake. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 tells us this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. As I said, we've been reading this as our benediction on occasion. Uh, But as we've been thinking about Emmanuel this season, remember, Emmanuel means what? God with us. Now, listen, that sounds great to us. But you know that that would sound very terrible if we were still in our sins. So, so when Emmanuel comes, it means judgment on the land of Israel who does not know the Lord, but judgment and salvation. They're always hand in hand, by the way, judgment and salvation because of sin. So with the death of one occurs the life of another. It springs up. 
like sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, for example. But for us, Emmanuel came, God was with us, and God bore the judgment of God for us. So he took our judgment. He took the wrath of the Father, and that's why we have life. That's why we celebrate Christmas, and that's why we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus Christ laid down his life so that you and I might come to know God. So if you're a member of the new covenant, if Christ is now your covenant head and you inherit blessing just as you once inherited the curse through Adam, you are welcome to partake at this table. If you don't know the Lord, he will come again. And when he does, he will come for judgment. So I implore you, look to Jesus Christ and be saved. Friends, your life is brief. Some 80, 90 years perhaps. But eternity will never end. Tens of thousands of ages will pass. And if you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, then you will never be reconciled to God. It's my charge to you is to take this time to consider your place with the Lord. And saints, those of you who know the Lord Jesus, prepare yourselves now to receive the elements.